0: Good to have everybody here today. Rainy day. I know people get discouraged about the rain, but the rain's good. Makes things grow. Keeps our forest moist. And if you have a cabin like we do next to a forest that could burn on fire and burn up your cabin, you're really happy about rain sometimes. Make sure it's nice and wet. Um, Just want to say that uh, if you have young children, you're visiting with us today and they're ages one through seven. We do have classes for them right now, and if you want to so choose, you can take them uh, over to that particular class down the hallway, sign them in and in the back there. Well, we have uh, three Sundays left in June, and as you know, we've been on a series of the parables of Jesus. Now, the problem with trying to fit all the parables of Jesus in a series is impossible. They're actually in Matthew, Mark, Luke. Just those three synoptic gospels, there's 55 parables. So if we did a series on all the parables of Jesus, that's all you're going to hear about are the parables, which may not be such a bad idea, you know, through a whole year, but I find that variety is the spice of life, and people can kind of get overkilled over on one particular subject. So I'm going to address today the parable of the unjust manager, and I'll deal with that in a second. But uh, And then next Sunday... It's Father's Day, and you got a special treat. you got Pat, uh, Bill Scheidler, who's a great teacher in our church, going to be teaching on fatherhood on Father's Day next, fa- next Sunday. And I just encourage you to come and hear Bill. He has much to say about that, and he's really lived it out. He's a great father in his own right with his own family. But uh, he'll be speaking next Sunday, and then I'll be back uh, on the uh, following Sunday to kind of finish the series on the 27th on, on the parables of Jesus. And uh, we'll be next week at New Vintage Church in Tri-Cities with our church plant there with Pastor Matt, Masters Matt and Lisa Molter, just doing a great job there in Tri-Cities. So it's a great honor for us to go and be with them. You know, the the Matthew 13 parables is really what we have spoken on uh, so far in this series. Those parables that you would find in Matthew 13 they're called the Kingdom Principle, the Kingdom Parables, because there's a real strong thematic theme about the concept called the Kingdom of God. Now, all the parables actually address really some aspect of the Kingdom of God. It's like these parables in Matthew 13 really zero in specifically on that particular subject. But um, I find that uh, uh, it's interesting, probably in the last 15, 20 years, if you listen to podcasts, books read, People preaching the hot young preachers on the scene, okay, whatever you want to call these guys. I really don't like using the word celebrity pastors. I my son in law is in that category, and he he loves all people, rich and poor, and he's he's one of the guys in the trenches with people many times. But uh, but he's just he just likes to be around all types of people, and he does favor with people. But but the, the emphasis and the preaching seems to be on grace. I mean, it just seems like grace and teachings on grace and it's all about grace and works of grace and even people like Joseph Prince and others out of Singapore just on grace. It's all about grace and grace and grace. And 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 that's great. Grace is a great subject. I embrace it and I love it and and I, I try to live out the doctrine of grace. But Jesus' teachings were really not about grace. Yes, tons of grace in his actions and even in some of his parables and what he said about that. But what he came, his main theme of his message was announcing the kingdom of God. He didn't say, you know, the, the, the grace is here, is at hand. He said the kingdom of God is here. So the kingdom of God was the object of Jesus' preaching. And just to talk about grace without an understanding of the kingdom of God... It's like me maybe trying to describe a car to you. You've never seen a car. You've never heard of a concept of a car. You've been in some underdeveloped nation, never had cars. There's still with horses and donkeys and wagons, and, and that's all that they know, and using animals to transport things. And I say there's this thing called a car, a guy named Henry Forty. He, he developed it way a long time ago, over 100 years ago, and if there's this car. And, and all I begin to talk about is gas, petrol. Okay, and how you need gas and gas does this and gas fires up the pistons and pistons cause the axle to turn and the wheels turn and it gets to this thing and, and you don't even know what a car is and I'm talking about you don't want to get this type of gas, you want to get this type of gas and I'm just talking about gas. Well, my car doesn't work without gas. Yours doesn't either. We run a little bit of electricity in our car. Some of you here uh, may have, have a Tesla. I have not quite arrived at that financial state to own a Tesla, but but the issue is, if I'm just talking to you about gasoline, 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 you're not going to really understand what a car is. Now, the object is not grace. Grace is not the end. Grace is the means. The object is the will of God. Grace gets me there. Grace aligns my heart to the will of God. Grace changes my attitudes and my self-sufficiency and my selfishness and my arrogance and all those things. It it addresses those things. Grace changes me. Grace empowers me. But also, grace makes me want to serve Jesus. But grace also brings the power and the presence of heaven to help me in this journey of this thing called the kingdom of God. But But the goal, the vision, where we're heading is a thing called the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus emphasized the kingdom in a little bit different way than his people expected. They looked at a nationalistic kind of a kingdom being established. It's not national. It's not nationalistic. It's universal. It doesn't involve one nation. It involves all nations. Not one people, but all people. It's also something that's not temporal, it's eternal. It's something that's not just going to happen here on earth and our life and your life and my life, but it's going to happen for, throughout all eternity. It's the permanent program called the kingdom of God. Even Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so you and I, we belong to another kingdom. We walk in submission to a king. We live for a king. We live by the rules of a king. We don't have rights by this king, only the rights he gives us, okay? We live in the kingdom of God. So we walk to the beat of a different drummer. And so the parables reveal to us, as I have said, like a broken record, the very nature of what this kingdom looks like and how it functions. And so today I want to address the the parable of the unjust manager. And why did you choose that? Well, it's been on my heart for a long time. I think there's some rich truth in this particular parable. But it's also probably about all the parables of Jesus. It's the most challenging to interpret. So I might I might present a view of this that's a little bit different than maybe things that you've heard about this particular parable as I address this today. How many of you read this parable in Luke sixteen that we're going to read in a second? And this guy, you know, is a, he's wasting his, his his master's possessions and. He, and, he, and someone reports him, and the manager is going to fire him. And he, he starts he, he starts um, dismissing everybody's debt so he could survive. And uh, you know, and you're reading this particular parable, and you're trying to figure out what does this parable mean. Have anybody read this parable and been consternated like this? Okay, well, I hope to bring some sense to this parable today. I uh, I was telling people in the first service. You know, people ask me, you know, what do you do with your time? I do a lot of things with my time. You know, as a pastor. But one of the things I do is I have theological arguments with myself in my office, okay? So, if uh, you know, what is Bob doing there for hours? Well, I'm fighting with myself. I'm having a, well, you used to believe this. Well, why don't you believe this now? Well, this is because you were wrong here. Well, why? You're wrong. And so I have a schizophrenic, kind of a multi-personality thing going on, spiritually, trying to wrestle over, I'm one of those guys, like, I want to really understand what Jesus was trying to say when he said something. I dig deep, and I I, and I'm, I'm exhausted after I'm done. Okay, it's not, you look so tired coming out of your office. I'm exhausted. I had a fight of fights with myself on this. But the parable of the unjust manager. Let's let's get there today. Here we go. Here's there's the parable. And he also said to disciples, if you read in your Bible, this is Luke 16.1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him. Uh, that his that, that this man this manager was wasting his possessions now how he was wasting was he charging things that he wasn't legally supposed to charge where he was pocketing that money was he skimming profit off the top Okay, and then giving his master what he said, you know, this guy paid 80 thing, eighty, you know, denarii here, but you know, he really charged 100 denarii. Uh, was he just slothful and not man, on top of the business? We don't know, but there was charges brought to this rich man that this guy's wasting your possession. And so he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you're no longer, you, you, you can no longer be manager. And so what he was asking him to do was hand in the books, bring the ledger, bring what I have lent out to all these other farmers, and bring in the records of what they have paid you, and I want the records. So this guy, this guy's in a fix. He's in a fix. And uh, going on here, and the manager said to himself, well, what shall I do since my master is taking... The management away from me. The one thing this manager understood is that his future was going to change probably most likely, and I could be wrong on this, within 24 hours I'm unemployed and I'm looking at my future and I have kind of a very realistic look at what this future looks like. So what does he do? He goes, I'm not strong enough to dig. He's probably what they called a fine man in the old King James Version, like Jacob. He was a fine man. He didn't have calluses on his hands. He wasn't strong. Labor work would have just taken him out. So he was a fine man. He just, I I can't dig. And of course, he said, I was probably, I'm ashamed to beg. And those this culture really you only had compassion for beggars if they were like widows or, or an orphan or somebody a child or somebody who was physically infirmed okay they would receive compassion but just you know the average guy in the street holding a sign you know hey I'll be honest all I need is a beer they're not gonna they're not gonna they're not gonna have too much uh, uh, compassion provoking in the heart of the people so I'm ashamed if I have to go do that Then he put a plan together. He has a plan. I have decided, I've put a plan what to do. I put a plan together on how to face the future. And he says, so that when I am removed from management, which is a foregone conclusion, people may receive me into their houses. Well, why would they do that? Well, they may receive the houses either by taking care of him or employing him, You know that I'm gonna be taken care of because of what I'm going to do. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one. Now, here's the issue with these debtors. They didn't know he was fired. They didn't know, they didn't know the conversation between him and his master. Okay, they, they think he's just representing this rich man like he's always represented this rich man. This guy is unemployed, the, the, the handwriting is on the wall. And he, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And of course, he said 100 measures of oil. By the way, that's got gallons and gallons of stuff. This is big volume type of measurements. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So basically, these people thinking he's operating in authorization of his master, they just thought that their master, the rich man, just forgave them a 50% of their debt. That's pretty good, that's pretty good news, isn't it? you owe $500,000 on your home and a mortgage, you go to the bank. And they said, you know what? You only owe $250,000. Okay, that, that's good news. That's good news, okay? This guy is, he's, he's shrewd. This is calling him shrewd. Take your bill, quickly write 50. And he said to the, the another, and and how much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. I don't know why the guy owing wheat pay, had to, got just a less of a discount, but The story, Jesus didn't break that down. I guess variety in a story is more important than consistency. The master commended, okay, so here's the issue. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, the one thing he didn't commend him for was his morality, but he commended him for his shrewdness. And Jesus ends this parable by saying, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation Than the sons of light. Wow. Well, this parable is a challenging parable. As I said, I may have been confused, and and it's confusing for Bible teachers, and it's been confusing for me. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've crossed this over in devotions and I've meditated on it, and I want to know what this means. What did it mean to the people of its time? And here are some of the challenges of this parable. I'm going to take you into a college classroom now, and I'm I'm going to answer questions you're probably not even asking. Okay, but just for about 10 minutes, give me grace as a geek and uh, just uh, kind of go with me on this. Where, where does this particular um, parable end? I mean, that's the first question we want to we look at. Many feel it continues through verse 12 because there's other statements. I got my big Bible here today, my Gideon's, come on, New Testament and Psalms, all right? And it says here, it says here, for instance, in verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. These are sayings of Jesus. It's not a story now. Jesus is saying things. There, verse 11, therefore, if you've, been faithful, if you've been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the trust, the true riches of the kingdom of God? Okay, these are sayings of Jesus, the famous ones, verse 13, that you hear in the Sermon on the Mount, no servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. Now, this is not a part of the parable. This is a part of Jesus saying things. And then in verse 14, in 14 it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him or mocked him. Okay, so is this connected to this particular parable? He was not talking to the Pharisees. He was talking to his disciples. So where does this end? Now, one of the things I appreciate about Luke, he's he's a great historian, and it gives me great faith in the authenticity of the New Testament. If you look at Luke chapter one and verse one and two, Luke goes right out of the gate how he wrote this gospel. He's gonna tell you exactly how he wrote this. He says, in as much, he's talking to a guy named Theo. We'll call it, it's it's Theophilus, but we're going to call him Theo, okay? Okay, like Leo, who's sitting here today, but it's not Leo, it's Theo. So you just call Theo. He's writing Theo, and he says, Inasmuch as as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. I think that's interesting. Many have undertaken to write a narrative. Didn't say a handful. I mean, there were a lot of people trying to write down the words of Jesus that they heard from eyewitnesses, from, from firsthand accounts, Trying to get that down. Many New Testament scholars believe there was a document that was circulated around the first century called the Q, they call the Q document that was kind of like a, 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 a potpourri of all the sayings and teachings and stories of Jesus that they drew from in this that were firsthand accounts. So he's, he's, he's compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so what probably Luke was doing, if you look at Luke 16, the theme throughout the chapter has three sections to it, really has to do with possessions, the whole chapter. We have the parable I just read. Then we have these sayings, you know, you can't serve God in money if you're faithful in what is least. You, you, if you're faithful in what is least, you'll be faithful in much. If you, if you haven't been, you know, faithful with unrighteous mammon, will God give you the true riches? All these sayings of Jesus then you got Jesus rebuking the Pharisees in verse 14 of Luke 16. He wasn't even, they weren't even in the conversation, and Jesus started this parable, and he addresses them how much you know, they are living lives of hypocrisy. He throws in a few commandments in other areas like adultery and stuff like that for a few verses, and then he, then he preaches, the, the, he writes down the, the famous parable of the rich man Lazarus and the beggar. Okay, and so the whole theme is dealing with a relationship, in most the majority of it, with possessions. It's my hypothesis that, that he writes these sayings of Jesus at the end of this parable, and the parable ends in verse 8. And uh, the, second, the second question is this. Is it connected to the previous chapter? Some people think that this is an account of a gracious God, the rich man, Who allowed these debts to be forgiven to sinners who need the grace of God. Well, there's two problems with them. In Luke 15, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in Luke 15, not his disciples, the Pharisees who said, you eat with sinners. You hang out with sinners. You, you, You are contaminated by sinners. And Jesus tells them three parables. You know them, lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Okay, that is what he's dealing with. Chapter 16, verse 1, he says to his disciples, it's a different conversation. Also, if you try to take this as a, a something about salvation, this particular parable, you're going to get into allegorizing things that shouldn't be allegorized. Instead, it, it wouldn't. The, the crowd that Jesus was sharing this to, the disciples that were hearing this, wouldn't draw that kind of conclusion if they heard it verbatim at, for the first time. The, second, the, the third thing is, that was it honest or noble what the manager did? I mean... Is Jesus trying to show us a noble principle? Well, really what the guy did is uh, really was highly dishonest. He didn't have the authority to forgive debts that he forgave. Uh, He was uh, a rascal. He was being fired because he was a rascal. Here it is. Jesus used somebody who wasn't moral at all and was completely dishonest to bring about a spiritual truth. And here's the other crazy thing. It doesn't even show that he had mass consequences for this outside of losing his job, okay? Why would Jesus then, that's the fourth question, why would Jesus use a dishonest rascal for us to model? Well, he doesn't want us to model his morality, but he wants us to model his shrewdness. And that's the key here. So, you know, Jesus used, if you look like at Luke 18, he used other figures in his parables who weren't necessarily righteous. Like Luke 18 is the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow who keeps coming to this judge who Jesus in his parable said did not fear God or respect people. Okay, now he wasn't a good guy, but yet this woman keeps coming, coming, won't stop coming to get her inheritance. And Jesus ties the whole thing for us to be persistent in prayer. So Jesus already has a track record of using these types of things in his teachings. The guy was a rascal. The fifth thing was this. Was this parable about money or an allegory of God's grace towards us as sinners? Well, it's definitely not an allegory about God saving sinners. And it has indirect references to what we do with money, yes. But not that's not the complete message of this parable. So I would say neither. And I hopefully, I can establish that in your mind and heart today, what Jesus was trying to get at. And last question is this where does the parable end? And we're, we're going to take the conservative position that it ends at verse 8. Now, three presuppositions of Luke in Luke 16, the whole chapter. His first presupposition is this that we are stewards, we're managers of what God has given us. God has given you life. Well, how do you know, Bob? Because you're sitting here breathing, listening to me, He's given you life. Second thing, he's given you health, he's given you resources, he's given you abilities, naturally and spiritually, and he's given you opportunities. Now, we determine what we're going to do with that. God gives it to us, but we determine what we're going to do with what he gives us. Even in my own life, I'm evaluating my life, my health, my age, and everything else, and, and I'm making in my mind and my plan ministerially, and, and my relationship with Sue and my wife and my kids and everything, I'm I'm kind of putting a 20-year plan together in my mind. Now, if God cuts that short, he can, but I'm trying to think in that light. I got only so many hours left in the bowl. Okay, what am I gonna do with this thing? That's called stewardship. The second uh, presupposition of Luke is that we need to live life in light of the future's reality. The manager was very, very concerned about his future. In fact, so much so he put a plan together. Because that future was a reality, and that future was in jeopardy because he was going to be unemployed in a very short period of time. Now, what is also a reality for you and I is a reality that we're going to enter into eternity, that this life is temporal. There's one thing I've dealt with in all my years of ministry is this. I've dealt with the subject of death. I've lived with death. I've walked people through death. I've been on the bedside of people who've entered into eternity. I've comforted people, have lost people. We've experienced it in our own family. I've experienced it as a pastor. In other words, I've buried a lot of people. I've done a lot of memorials. I've processed questions with a lot of people. So when people ask me a lot of times, you know, what do you do? I really, one of my jobs as a pastor is to prepare people for death. That's one of the things I do. Because eternity is a, a very, very real reality, it is in the New Testament. Eternity is a reality. We, we go for, we look at things that are unseen. We do not look at things that we see, Paul says. Absent from the body, Paul said, but present with the Lord. Paul said, you know, I'd rather be with Jesus right now, but for your sake, I'll be with you. For to die to gain, for 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 Christ is me to live and to die is gain. Why? Because I'm going to be in His very presence. Now He wasn't morbid, He wasn't suicidal. He just longed for this relationship with Jesus eternally. And remember, He was taken up into that place where we're going, and He was forbidden to share exactly what He saw. So He knew what was happening and where He was going. We need to live life in light of future's reality. And the third thing about about Luke's emphasis in that 16th chapter is that we'll give an account at a day of judgment. You know, I determine what I do with all those things that God gives me, but I will give an account of what I've chosen to do with those things. All right, here we go. Let's talk and break break the the parts down of the story. A rich man and a manager that was wasting his possessions. You know, a great question that you and I should ask ourselves is what has God given you, and what are you doing with it? What has he given you, and what are you doing with it for his glory, for his purpose, with what he has given you? I think doing an, an inventory in every category of your life in light of eternity is a very, very wise exercise, and I challenge you to do it. The, the, the manager was wasting the possessions of his master. Second is this, is the rich man wanted the manager to hand over the financial records. You know, he said, turn in your records, turn in your accounts of your management. I wanna see the books, I wanna see what you've done, I wanna see how you ripped me off. So, you know, my, my question is this, what will the record show when you give an account to God? I, I, I think about that, what will my record show? I think we need to soberly at times without tormenting ourselves reflect upon them. You know, the apostle Paul said this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So whether I'm on earth or I'm in his presence, the one thing I want to do is I want to please Jesus. And that you know, I would I would I would wager everything, that everyone's sitting here today. That's why you're here, because and and you want to make sure that you are pleasing him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body or in this present life, whether it's good or evil. Now, when it says evil, we think like, you know, shooting people and robbing banks and you know, abuse, abusing other people or ripping people off and white-collar crime, you know, evil stuff. But but also the scripture talks about laziness as evil. Remember the parable of the talents? The one guy had one talent, he buried it. When he had to give an account to the master, he said this: Why did you bury it, you wicked and lazy servant? So wickedness is actually to actually not do with what God's given us, what we're supposed to do with what God's given us. So Paul says we're gonna give an account. Leonard Ravenhill was one of the great preachers of revival, especially during the Jesus people movement in the 60s, and he came out of England in 1950s, 60s, 70s, and was, was a, was, man, he was like Keith Green's, like, you know, you know, Maharishi, his guru that he just looked at as a revivalist, Leonard Ravenhill, he wrote this. That's good, that's good, here we go, that's good. I'm missing something here. That's okay, I'm always missing something. I'm trying to turn the page here. I'm going to go on, I'm gonna read it to you. <clears throat> I am frozen here on my, on my iPad. I'm, I'll get back to this. I'm gonna read it to you. I had it on quote, got deleted. The, the, the life, this life, this is what Leonard Ravenhill said, this life is a dressing room for eternity. That's all it is. This life is a dressing room for eternity. The real thing is eternity. We're just getting prepared for it. That's all it is. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next or the next world. Uh, Okay, I just got just two things deleted between services. That's okay. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Something to reflect on. Those who have impacted this world were really thinking about the next. And those who were really thinking about this world were ineffective in this world. What are we doing in light of eternity? Going on here. You're, gonna, you're going to uh, have to follow me. but I'm all frozen up here. Okay, Alicia, you got me? All right. The manager forgave the debts of his master's debtors when he had no authorization to do so. So, you know, in light of the, the immediate future, he put together a plan to secure his future. So the question is this. Do you have a plan on how you want to please God? I know having a plan on how you want to please God seems so mechanical, but I think pleasing God has to be an intentional thing. In other words, what you need to ask yourself, what do I do with my time? What do I do with my money? What do I do in sharing Jesus with others? What do I do in developing my spiritual gifts? What do I do in building the church? What do I do in serving and loving others in my community? you got to weigh out and evaluate that stuff. you got to be intentional. It just won't happen. You know, working with people over the years, it's always funny. Someone will say, well, I can't save money now. You know, I'm talking to pastors all the time about their retirement. You know, you need to put some money away, away. Because I'm telling you, when you get older, it's not like the church is gonna care for you like a welfare agency, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a big joke to be saving money right now. But if you don't, what you're facing now is going to be Shangri-La to what you're going to be facing in the future. But you know, later, later, later. I'm going to eat well later, later, later. I'm going to exercise later, later. Everything's always later. I'm going I'm to find my ministry when I quit my career later, later, later. You know what I found? I found no one does any of those things if they don't start doing things now. They don't have to do drastic things now. They don't have to do exorbitant things now, but they got to start doing things now in light of their future going forward here. So do you have a plan on how you want to please God? The other thing is this. The rich man commended his manager for his shrewdness. That was interesting. He didn't commend him for his morality, as I said. He commended him for his shrewdness. In other words, what was so shrewd about this plan of him forgiving everybody their debts? Well, this is a shame-based culture. First century Jewish culture is a shame-based culture. You do not want to lose face in front of your people. The people thought he was acting in place of his master. (laughs) And when he was forgiving 50% of their debt, 20% of their debt, 30% 30% of their debt, giving better timelines and paying off their debt. Guess who the people thought was doing that? The master. And so who knows? Master came out of his house one day. There was a crowd of people. We love our master. We love, our, we love the rich man of our village. You're the great guy. You're the great guy. What's he going to do? Say, you know, it was all a farce. You got to pay me everything I owed. He, he wouldn't. He got, he got painted into a corner. But yet at the same time, the favor he had probably prospered him even more. The liberal soul shall be what made fat. He got favor. I find it so funny going into businesses sometimes. Like you know, like getting some Mexican food. You got to eat guacamole. That'll be a seventy-five cents more. You want me to come back? You know, I've never really wanted to go back to a stingy restaurant. You know, we're going to give you a little kernels of corn. Come back. We really love your business. Well, you really don't love my business. You're not feeding me anything. Okay, this, this guy prospered his master, brought favor and honor to his master, that his master couldn't create himself. Shrewdness. Now, do you have a life philosophy statement that, and, and would God say it was wise? Just right now a statement of my philosophy of life, where God would say, well, this is very wise how you're living, how you're giving your time, how you're using your gifts. So the best, the big question, though, in this parable, and bringing it to a close, and the worship team can come up now, is this, is what did Jesus mean when he said, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light? Well, this is what I believe it means that the sons of this age make plans for future realities in the natural when God's people ignore the reality of eternity. The wisdom and the shrewdness of the sons of this age is future financial issues have to be addressed. We got to prepare now. And when Jesus is saying the sons of light, they're not even thinking about eternal issues when it comes to their life. So how do I respond, Bob? Well, first, don't panic. Don't become hyper introspective and, you know, oh my God, is God going to fry me here? Is He going to slap me here? First, God's a loving God and a loving Father. He's with you. He's going to help you. He does want you're going to give an account to Him, but He's also a loving God and a loving Father. But but start by evaluating yourself. In other words, in light of the New Testament in the light of the teachings of Jesus in light of the word of the word of God how am i living what is my is my lifestyle adjusting to the lifestyle of this book what have i done with with what god has given me what have i done with my abilities what have i done with my anointing what have i done with with some of the resources god's given me what have i done with the opportunities he has given me And third is to become intentional. You must become intentional. Once you kind of do this evaluation, then you put a plan together, you start taking steps of action to do this plan. It's not going to happen by dreaming. It's not going to happen by just talking about it. It's going to happen by doing. And then guard your heart. Distractions. There are demonic distractions to pull you away from the things that you know that God's spoken to you about lining up to this book. Watch out for idols, selfish attitudes, choices, wrong ambition. And make sure that you're focused upon the words of Jesus and eternal reality of serving his purpose in his kingdom. Lord, make this work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.